So the paper I want to give, or the talk I'd like to give, is uh, tentatively entitled Bible Babble Bubble, Sola Scriptura Contra Thomas Munzer and the 16th Century Radicals. The title is taken from a comment made in passing by uh, uh, A. Skevington Wood uh, back in, in uh, 1981, who attributes this saying to, to uh, Munzer, who if he didn't say it, and I haven't been able to find that he did, he, he certainly could have, and I thought that was a great way to capture um, so what, uh, what Munzer was saying to the, what we may call, what I certainly think of as the more orthodox uh, wings of the Reformation. In fact, I think we'll see that, that uh, the uh, Munzer and his colleagues in the, in the radical wings of the Reformation really properly don't belong uh, in the Reformation. This, I, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble, so I might as well start now. Um, so <laughs> you, what, what, can you, what can you do to me um, that hasn't already been done? <laughs> I used to have hair, so. Um, the, uh, the Protestants, the confessional uh, magisterial Protestants, and even that qualifier I'm coming to, to think is really not very helpful, since virtually everybody in the Reformation was magisterial when they had the chance. Um, so, for, uh, for example, I was just looking at um, Carlos Iyer's new uh, survey of the Reformation, and, and I love Carlos Iyer's work. He's a terrific writer. This is no way in any denigration, but he, he has this interesting taxonomy of, of radicals and Anabaptists, and he actually, ha to his credit, has a category, magisterial Anabaptists, which was uh, something I've been saying to my students, you know, for several years now, that uh, Minster wasn't all that atypical, really, um, the rebellion in, in, in 1534, 1535. Um, in fact, uh, just about everybody in the 16th century, even when they professed that they didn't want the magistrate to impose the Reformation, uh, when they got the chance, tried to use the magistrate to impose the Reformation. So, and I think, I hope we would all agree that a pox in all their houses, they were all wrong, and, and the magistrate had no business uh, doing that. But, um, so making this, these taxonomies is, is interesting and difficult, uh, but, but I think it's still fair to say that, and here's where I think I'll probably get into trouble, the Anabaptists and the other radicals uh, don't belong in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, a lot of folks think of the Anabaptists and the other radicals as just a radical wing of the Reformation, but they weren't. If, if we define the Reformation as folks committed to a certain set of propositions, and they were, and there were basic propositions, uh, the, the solas, right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And the scriptures as the soul, in that sense, final is what I mean by soul, not the only, but the final magisterial ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. Um, there were some Anabaptists that professed that, but they also rejected the other solas, the other basic uh, Reformation commitments. So they really don't fit under that umbrella. Uh, so it, it, uh, it's interesting then to think about the interaction uh, between the, the and what, which is what I, what, I, what I want to do today, think about the interaction between the magisterial Protestants who held to sola scriptura, and by that I mean that the scriptures, the canonical scriptures, are the final ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. Uh, what I don't mean by that is that this is uh, what is 
come to be, and I think properly denominated as Biblicism. That word gets used in a variety of ways, and what I mean by that is I and my Bible by myself in the closet without reference to anyone else, uh, without reference to the ecumenical church, without reference to the ancient church, and without reference to the, the contemporary church, for example, in, in her confessions. Um, that's not what Sola Scriptura meant to any of the magisterial Protestants, and it, it isn't uh, at all what they what they confessed. If we have time, maybe we'll, we'll look a little bit at um, Belgic Confession, chapter 7, which is one of the documents that I subscribe as a, a minister and a teacher. Well, in May 1520, on Martin Luther's recommendation, Thomas Münzer, 1489 to 1525, the talented young minister, was called temporarily to serve St. Catherine's Church in Zwickau about, in, since I'm in Southern California, I'll give the, the rel the relationship in terms of time and not distance, about night we measure everything by time. How far is that away? About 20 minutes is what we say. And that means it's about four blocks. Um, so it was about 90 minutes uh, south of Leipzig and about two and a half hours northwest of Prague, if that helps you. Uh, not far from the modern Czech border. In the, in the congregation, there were three particularly fiery souls uh, namely, Nicholas Storch, who died in 1525, Thomas Drexel, and Marcus Thomas Stubner, who became known as the Zwickau prophets. They had rejected infant baptism, and under their influence, Münzer, who was university educated, uh, which sets him apart from some of the more interesting figures in the Radical Reformation, also rejected infant baptism, and most importantly for the purposes of, of this talk, the Protestant relationship between word and spirit. He adopted not only what George Hunston Williams called a spiritualist hermeneutic, but a radical view of the relations between the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Uh, he fled to Prague, where he wrote his Prague Manifesto, and we'll be looking at that in, in, uh, momentarily. And after a period of wa wandering, we find him uh, in Allstedt, which is probably the crucial turning point in his life. In 1523, uh, in Allstedt, he continued to develop his eschatological and apocalyptic vision for society and church. And while he was there, he published increasingly radical texts, sermons, and treatises, such that Luther began calling for him to be tried by the theology faculty at Wittenberg. Pressure, as pressure mounted upon the elector Saxony, Johann Friedrich I, to resolve the growing crisis, Münzer at Allstedt insisted on making things worse, and, and he did. So on July 13, 1524, the elector, the chancellor, and others gathered in the castle in Allstedt, about an hour west of Leipzig, to hear Münzer preach. And he took as his text Daniel 2, and in this message, he denounced the theologians of Wittenberg, Luther chief among them, as fat and lazy, which I think is a little unfair. I don't think Luther was all that corpulent just yet. He would get there, but not yet. According to Munzer, they, they uh, fancied themselves the keepers of Scripture, but they did not have those, quote, divine secrets that God reveals to his friends. He mocked what we would call the expository preaching of the scriptures as babbling, hence babble, Bible, babble, bubble. 
in favor of being, uh, again quoting, overshadowed by the power of the divine word. In the words of Hans Jürgen Goetz, for Münzer, it was not Holy Scripture, but the divine spirit, which was the sole reliable authority. Scripture was important to Münzer because it bore witness to the way of salvation, but was not itself that way. He distinguished sharply between spiritual and creaturely realms. Salvation springs from the spirit, not scripture. That is, not from scripture. Since scripture, in essence, is creaturely. And here you can begin to, to sense the kind of radical ontological dualism that lay behind the way Munzer looks at the world. And by ontological dualism, I mean the, the world is divided into the material and the, the, the spiritual, the immaterial. And like the Albigensians in the 13th century and uh, some of the dualists uh, in the second and third centuries, right, the spiritual world is good and to be desired and achieved in the material world is suspect and to be fled or in some cases indulged because it's not, it's not really real. And, uh, you, and if you're paying close attention, good for you, <laughs> you're still here. But if you're paying close attention, you'll hear echoes, I think, of at least some of, maybe much, my curmudgeonly historical way of thinking, much of contemporary evangelicalism. In his Allstedt sermon on Daniel 2, he proclaimed that the Spirit of God is now actively revealing the word. Therefore, he implored, my precious rulers of Saxony. You see, he's a ostensible wannabe magisterial, if he has the chance. Step up boldly, he called, under the cornerstone, meaning Christ. You must do it for the sake of the gospel. This is not an altar call. There's no anxious bench here. He's calling for the magistrate, the princes, to employ the sword in the service of the advancement and, and even the realization of an eschatological even millennial kingdom on the earth, if only people will hear the mystical word. Now is not the time, he said, for grace and love, but now is the time for the elect to suffer, quoting now, a heavy cross and much distress. My, uh, I'm from Nebraska. I suppose I should let, let that out right away. And I, I was... Uh, raised by, born in Kansas and raised by folks from Kansas. My dad, who was a professional white-collar guy, but, but um, raised, and my mom raised on a farm, uh, but um, some, somewhat rugged in his own way, dad used to say, when I was holding the air conditioner every spring, it was my, one of my main functions in life for the first 13 or 14 years of my life, was to substitute for a two-by-four. Dad was not very uh, handy, and he never, never dawned on him that he could have cut a two-by-four and then put one on top and then put that underneath the, the air conditioner. So every spring, he, he sent me out to stand underneath the, the window unit while we installed it. And he used to say, when I complained after 10 or 15 minutes, don't be a pansy. I, all, I tell you all of that to say that that's Munzer's view of people who rely on Holy Scripture. Uh, the Bible is for pansies. Real spiritual Christians don't uh, 
necessarily need the Bible. It's, it's, it's interesting, it's helpful, but there's much more to the Word of God than the Bible. Now is the time, he said, for altars and images uh, of, uh, of idols to be destroyed and burned. He called upon the princes to act now, lest the Lord remove their sword from them. He positioned them as latter-day Nebuchadnezzars and himself as God's Daniel. Because, quoting again, the godless have no right to live except as the elect are willing to grant it to them. Sort of. <laughs> so, yeah, there's uh, Sharia is a universal impulse is what this, is what this means. And by the way, uh, we'll get, if I, in case I don't get to this, you, if any, I don't know if any of you are aware of a movement called Theonomy or Christian Reconstruction. It's a, it's a boogeyman for some, um, an error for, for sure, for I hope for most of us, uh, certainly for me. Uh, but what's interesting is increasingly I think that the rhetoric and the theology of Christian Reconstruction is not really fundamentally to be found in the confessional reformed tradition as much as it's to be found in the radical movements of the early 16th century. The uh, Second Helvetic Confession um, written by Bullinger in 1561 and published in 66 actually decries uh, those who look for a, a, a Jewish golden dreams of an earthly golden age on the earth, which is interesting for someone to write in the time of Christendom, um, when, it, when it was assumed universally that the magistrate should impose a church, uh, even then. Um, and so the uh, reason I mention that is, is the people that he had in mind when he criticizes that were, were just these folks, these kinds of folks, uh, Munzer and others. Even before the Alstead sermon, he had elaborated a doctrine of word and spirit in his 1521 Prague Manifesto, manifesto, where he announced, quote, a new song of praise uh, of the Holy Spirit and recalled bitterly how the ministry of the pestiferous priestlings, that's his language, not mine, had been utterly useless to him because they had not yet emptied their minds, nor had they been filled seven times by the sevenfold spirit. All they had were, quoting again, the icy words of Scripture stolen from the biblical books. They are false prophets to whom God has not spoken, who deceive God's people, usurp God's words, because, quoting again, they deny that my spirit speaks to men down the centuries, that is, God's spirit. They scorn those who affirm that the Holy Spirit speaks and testifies to us, he says. Those false liars and their stinking lips are ripe for judgment. These men live out this abomination, bring it forth, and vomit it out. What mortal man would call them chaste dispensers of the manifold grace of God and the undaunted preachers of the live and not the dead word? For they have been ordained at the hands of the papist corrupter and anointed with the old, sinner, with the old uh, uh, spirit of sinners that flows down from the head uh, to the heels. In short, he wrote, these men have a lying pen, for they reject the living word, which no created being can understand unless it is ready to suffer. 
and they usurp the words which they will never, ever hear themselves. Munzer's uh, apocalyptic and eschatological message didn't remain mere theory for very long. You can almost imagine if you're, and I can see, I see some white hair and, and beards, and, and so I know that some of you remember some of the same episodes that I remember. Um, 1979, a preacher in San Francisco who was politically influential, such that lots of famous people had their, lots of famous California uh, politicians had their photographs taken with this fellow. Well, he ended up in a steamy jungle called Guyana where he and hundreds, 900 other people drank Kool-Aid. And for those of you who are too young to remember, drinking the Kool-Aid isn't just a, a, a form, an expression. They literally drank poison Kool-Aid and they, they died. And then some of you remember Waco and other such episodes. Those things are not new. Those things have been going on for a long time. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, his, uh, as I say, his eschatological and apocalyptic message didn't remain theory. After an, uh, a, a, an ill-advised uh, attack by a Roman prince upon some Protestants uh, nearby caused an influx of refugees into Allstedt. Tensions mounted by, by this time, Munzer is out of town. He's in, in uh, Mühlheisen. By July, he was forming uh, an alliance and calling for a sort of covenant among the Allstedters to facilitate the advent of the kingdom of God on the earth. The alliance crumbled, however. The princes disappointed him, and in, and in his view, Luther himself had betrayed him. As Luther reacted to pointing Munzer to Scripture, Munzer reacted by radicalizing even further. If, uh, if someone had never had sight or sound of the Bible at any time in his life, he could still hold the one true Christian faith because of the true teaching of the Spirit, just like those who composed the Holy Scripture without any books at all. By Easter 1525, we find Munzer at the vanguard of a widespread and violent peasant revolt in Thuringia and the Black Forest. And towards the latter stages of that episode, he took leadership of the rebellion and he cast it not so much in terms of taxes and fairness, which had been the sort of the original impulse of the rebellion. Now it became an eschatological battle between the, 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 uh, those who were serving the spirit and those uh, uh, who were not. Area nobility that had been captured were tried and executed. Omnia sunt communia was declared. Everything was to be held in common. Think Occupy Thuringia. You, uh, if you want to know what the Peasants' Rebellion looked like, uh, go, uh, go look at YouTube video of Occupy Wall Street and folks defecating on police cars and the like. That, that same spirit. There was a, somebody wrote an essay during that period arguing that if we're Calvin alive today, I always loved these, <laughs> these, ar these arguments. If Calvin were alive today, he would agree with me. Um, were Calvin alive today, he would be in support of, of uh, Occupy, the various Occupy movements. And, I, and all I could respond, I could only respond by saying this fellow has clearly 
never read a page of Calvin in his entire life. Occupy was one of the things that kept him awake at night. It, it would have been his worst nightmare. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have slept during the entire uprising. He would have been so distraught over public disorder. But it, it, I, uh, I delay. So Munzer uh, is the Noah of this new age, and the judgment floodgates are about to open when the princes finally had enough. They struck back with savage intensity, murdering as many as 6,000 pe peasants. Within a few days, blood literally ran in the streets and in the fields. Munzer, who had escaped, these guys almost always do. Peter the hermit gets away. He leads everyone into the, the first crusade, not everyone, but, but an early phalanx into the first crusade, and then when the fighting is over, Peter's nowhere to be found. Uh, Munzer gets away, but he, he, he took ill and was captured, and then uh, interrogated, tried, tortured, and finally put to death. To the end, he stood by his vision of himself as a latter-day Josiah and of the righteousness of imposing an eschatological or the eschatological order. And he, did, and he wanted to do so, at least in part, on the basis of the Mosaic laws, hence my connection to the Reconstruction movements and the theonomy movements. In defense of my uh, contemporary applications of some of this, I, I was asked to talk about Reformation then and now. So it's the, uh, I'm, I've been, I've been uh, required not only to preach, but also to meddle. That's, you know, we can argue about that later. Um, such a, a message, of course, could only terrify both confessional Protestants and Romanists, but this episode is instructive for us in, in other ways as we remember the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, often noted as the formal cause of the Reformation, that is, as I said at the beginning, the doctrine that the Scriptures are the unique, final, and magisterial, and by that I mean ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life, uh, and in that sense alone, right, in that, tech, that qualified sense alone, was crucial to the process of Luther's Reformation breakthrough, particularly in the years 1518 to 1521. When Luther declared at Worms that his conscience was captive to the word of God, he was only repeating in, in uh, public what he had already been saying in correspondence and in other treatises. That wasn't the first time that he had said that. In fact, you can find uh, the substance of what he had said um, um, a couple of years earlier. In, uh, uh, certainly. And in March 1521, right, so about a month before he stood before God and the powers of this world at Worms, he had written to the Holy Father in Rome in his response to the papal condemn, uh, condemnation uh, uh, execrabilis, that was the condemnation. His in his response, he said, quoting now, and this is a lengthy quote, but it's Luther. Come on, what else have you got to do for the next 10 minutes? This is my answer to those also who accuse me of rejecting all the holy teachers of the church. I do not reject them, but everyone indeed knows that at times they have erred as men will. Therefore, I am ready to trust them only when they give me evidence for their opinions from Scripture, which has never erred. This, St. Paul bids me to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, where he says, test everything, hold fast what is good. St. Augustine writes to St. Jerome to the same effect, I have learned to do only those books that are called the Holy Scriptures, the honor of believing firmly that none of their writers has ever erred. All others I so read as not to hold what they say to be the truth unless they prove it to me by the Holy Scripture 
or clear reason. If you know what Luther said at Worms, and he didn't say, here I stand, there's no evidence for that, I'm sorry. And it's also, there's also no evidence that he ever actually nailed the theses on the church door at Wittenberg. So. That's my job, really. I'm, I'm a professional killjoy. We, we, know, <laughs> we know for a certainty that he mailed the 95 Theses to the Archbishop Mainz. So the question is whether they were nailed or mailed, and certainly we know they were mailed. But, uh, and he almost certainly, he, he should have said, here I stand, I could do no other, but there's no evidence that he did. But, um, but he did say, Right? Unless they uh, prove it to me by, by Holy Scripture or clear reason. If you know the, 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 the Worms speech, the great concluding speech, you can hear already he's formulated it a month ahead of time. Holy Scripture must necessarily be clearer, simpler, and more reliable than any other uh, uh, writings, since all teachers verify their own statements through the Scriptures as clearer and more reliable writings and desire their own writings to be confirmed and explained by them, but nobody can ever substantiate an obscure saying by one that is more obscure. Therefore, necessity forces us to run to the Bible with uh, the scripture, uh, um, sorry, with the writings of all teachers, and to obtain there a verdict and judgment upon them. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, is the true Lord and master of all writings and doctrines on the earth. If that is not granted, what is scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and human teachers. So sola scriptura is right at the headwaters of the Reformation. It's being articulated as early as informal terms in 1521 and, and substantially, I think, even even before that. So it's not surprising then when we think about sola scriptura, we concentrate on the Protestant interaction with Rome, but from the perspective of the Protestants, the Anabaptists and other radicals posed just as great a threat to the magisterial authority of scripture. Some portrayals of the Anabaptists, however, don't account for the ways in which at least some, if not many, of the first generation Anabaptists marginalized the written word in favor of the unwritten word or the unmediated revelation of the Spirit. In an older essay, John C. Wenger rejects as shop-worn the charge that the evangelical Anabaptists, against the evangelical Anabaptists, that they deprecated or depreciated the outer written word in favor of the inner word. He conceded that, his phrase, fringe leaders such as Hans Denk did so, but the rank and file, again his language, uh, of the Swiss brethren, the Austrian Hutterites, and the Dutch Mennonites did not. Apart from his appeal to the Swiss brethren, however, most of the examples to whom he pointed were second generation and necessarily more moderate figures since the radicals typically died by 1529 and, uh, and following their apocalyptic visions into the flames of martyrdom. I agree that the picture is fuzzier now than it was in the 16th century when all Anabaptists were frequently denominated as Schwenkfelders, Schwermerei, or fanatics. Nevertheless, it seems impossible to marginalize such a figure as Thomas Münzer. Goethe is certainly right that Münzer was an apocalyptic revolutionary figure, but he was also an Anabaptist and a harbinger of revolutions to come in the, in the coming years and in the coming centuries. Uh, 
if you're looking for the source of modernity in the 16th century, and I very much don't like the way that scholars talk about the Reformation as early modern, very little of the Reformation is actually, by any reasonable standard, early modern. The reformers were medieval people. Right? If we define modern people as asking, for example, the t what's the typical modern question? Well, it's has God said? It's the great prolegomenal question that with which people are still obsessed, right, even today. No, no pre-modern person is asking, right, no genuinely pre-modern person is asking, has God said? They're asking, what has God said? And they're fighting about what God has said, and they're willing to kill each other over what God has said. I don't think, there's no evidence that Luther ever actually threw an ink well when he was in the Wartburg, uh, though it's a great, if you go again, to, see, here I go, but if you, when you go to visit, First of all, get in shape, because that is a hike up the Vartburg. I, I kid you not, people have died having heart attacks going up the Vartburg. So you've been warned, right? Get your aerobic health in order. Secondly, when you see that ink stain in the, in the room where he did the work, that was touched up in the 19th century, right? He, did, he probably didn't actually throw an inkwell. But he did think the devil was rattling around in the, in the attic. Modern people, probably to our discredit, tend to discount such things. I always pester my students, how did Jesus go through a, a door? And, and I know when they come to me, they all have a Star Trek Christology. They think they're, they're modern people, right? They've seen, but they've seen James T. Kirk, right, dissolve and, 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 and re, right? And so they, they assume, well, Jesus must have done something like that. And of course, that's heresy against the Catholic faith. And they know the door doesn't change because they're modern people. Of course doors don't. Well, actually, in the biblical world, uh, changing doors and walking on water, that's not such a big deal. It's a big deal, but it's not such a big deal as it is for us. The people we're talking about here, these are, for the most part, pre-modern, medieval people. But if you're looking for proto-modern folks, you're looking at the Anabaptists. These are radical individualists. These are people with their, uh, in, in, many of them, and I think some of the Swiss brethren, contra Wenger, are, these are men and women of, of visions of immediate and unmediated encounters, which is what I mean by immediate, unmediated encounters with the risen Christ. If you're looking for the roots, for example, and we'll come back to this, of the Cane Ridge uh, revival in 1800 in, in the New World, and, uh, and now to get into even more trouble, I promise you I'm probably going to find a way to offend everyone here, Topeka and Azusa Street. It's, it's in the 1520s in Germany and in Zürich. So uh, how did the Reformed respond? Well, Holdrich Zwingli was one of the first theologians besides Luther in the Reformation to use the expression sola scriptura, and he used it uh, with some frequency. And like Luther, he articulated it not only against Rome, but also against the radicals and against the Anabaptists. And, and I think this is important because it's been argued, uh, at least implicitly, sometimes explicitly, for centuries, but it, and it continues to be argued, uh, For if, just to give one example, the uh, Baptist scholar Abraham Friesen argues, uh, argued recently in a 2013 Feschrift 
that Zwingli not only shared a common commitment to sola scriptura with the Swiss brethren, uh, Conrad Grable, George Blaurock, and uh, the fellow with the best name in the 16th century, Balthazar Hubmeier. If I'm too old now, but were I to have a son, I'd be seriously tempted to name him Balthazar. Would that not be awesome? What's your name, son? My name is Balthazar. Right? How could that child not have dignity? Right? <laughs> that, uh, that child's going to get hired for a serious job just on the basis that his name is Balthazar. And anyway, uh, Balthazar, uh, who am I? These are the Swiss brethren. Uh, in and around Zurich and, uh, and uh, engaged with uh, Zwingli in the, in the years 1523-1524. And Friesen is arguing that uh, they shared this uh, common view of sola scriptura, but that the, uh, the Swiss brethren, the, these early Anabaptists, followed the hermeneutic of sola scriptura to its logical conclusion in, in denying infant baptism, but that uh, implicitly, uh, Zwingli, the implication, the implication is that Zwingli abandoned the Swiss brethren, not on the basis of principle, but on the basis of prag pragmatism. Friesen accuses Zwingli repeatedly of serving the times, and, of ar and he argues that Zwingli knew that the Anabaptists were biblically correct, to deny baptism to infants, uh, and that Zwingli uh, refused to baptize infants not out of conviction, but, but because he was a time-serving pragmatist. It's true that for a brief period of time, the magisterial uh, Swiss reformer nearly became an Anabaptist. In his 1525 treatise on baptism, he confessed, for some time, probably a brief time, I myself was deceived by the error of the Anabaptists, and I thought it better not to baptize children until they came to years of discretion. But I was not so dogmatically of this opinion as to take the course of many today, who, although they are far too young and inexperienced in the matter, argue and, and assert rashly that infant baptism derives from the papacy or the devil or something equally nonsensical. By 1523, however, Zwingli had rejected the Anabaptist argument in favor of an early version of what would become standard Reformed covenant or federal theology. In his 1530 Fidei Ratio, his uh, explanation of the faith, uh, the reasons for the faith, he argued, for his faith, he argued from the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant with the new covenant, but the role of sola scriptura is an underappreciated aspect of his argument. He argued that our infants are in the same position, that is, Christian, the children of Christians are in the same position as those of the Hebrews. Those Hebrew children did not profess faith prior to circumcision, and neither do our infants. The promise that God made to the Hebrews, I will be a God to you and to your parents, or to your children, excuse me, is still in effect. To Charles V in 1530, he denied agreeing with the Anabaptists. Um, Hubmeier had let it out that uh, Zwingli had come to agree with them and so put, his reform put the Reformation in, in, in um, disrepute and in some jeopardy. And so in a rhetorical flourish worthy of President Trump claimed, I have been the first to teach and write against them. Probably not true, but... 
Who knows what he would have done with, who knows what he would have done had he Twitter. <laughs> the Reformation on Twitter. <laughs> uh, well, maybe fewer people would have died. Hoopmeyer et al. had charged Zwingli with failing to follow scripture, but Zwingli made the same charge against them. In his 1531 short and clear exposition, pu published posthumously in 1536, he complained, uh, though the Catabaptists, that is those, that's his favorite denominator for the Anabaptists. So Anna means to re-baptize, and Cata means to, to oppose baptism. So, uh, that, so hence the Catabaptists. No, nothing to do with kitties. Um, who pretend to be so directed by the Spirit that if they stand still or, or uh, suddenly, uh, if they stand still suddenly or go forward suddenly, they put it down to the Spirit. Right? are not wrong for we do not live much less move without the direction of the deity yet however much uh, things are done uh, things of this kind are done by God's impulse they are nevertheless done to publish the rejection hypocrisy and folly of these people Zwingli is noting uh, a phenomena that other Protestants noted and, and, and uh, one in particular that I'll come to in a minute that we are familiar with since, particularly since uh, Topeka and Azusa Street, right, we, we would call this a Pentecostal phenomena. It's not well known, but the early, many of the early Anabaptists practiced most all of the Pentecostal phenomena, whether it was tongues, whether it's being slain in the spirit, whether it's having visions, trances, um, and when I say slain on the spirit, I mean uh, falling to the ground rolling around, everything that, if you've ever been in a good old-fashioned AOG uh, revival service, that's it, right? That's the, that stuff is happening among the Anabaptists in the early 1520s. So you mustn't think of your polite, re restrained Mennonite friends. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Topeka and Azusa Street and the, and the, and the Cane Ridge revival and the like. According to Zwingli, complained that when Scripture goes against them, they appeal to private revelation. In and so they did in 1527 in the Articles of Couts. I'm sure you're all well familiar with the Articles, the famous Articles of Couts from 1527. Some of the Anabaptists argued, and I'll just give the two of the relevant uh, theses that they argued. One, the external word is not the true living or eternally abiding word. And by the external word, they mean that NIV translation in the pew there. But only the testimony or indication of the inner to satisfy the demand for external things. Two, nothing external, whether word, sign, sacrament, or promise, has power uh, to assure, console, or make certain the inner man. You see this stark juxtaposition of the inner word over against the outer word. In response, Wingley complained for it, it, it at the same time takes away uh, from us the scriptures of the Old and New Testament for at Gruningen you tread upon the Old Testament just as much as worms upon the new, just as much as at worms upon the new. If you admit it not to be true, what boldness is it to simulate the divine spirit with such persistency and wantonness. In his 1527 refutation of the tricks of the Catabaptists, and if you're going to read this, gird, your, gird up your loins. This is 
Um, this would be uh, something like TVMA, LV, right? Uh, language and at least rhetorical violence. But it's still illuminating. Zwingli repeatedly uh, appealed at length and in detail to scripture for his defense of infant baptism. Indeed, apart from the rancorous tone of the essay, many of the arguments are identical to those conducted between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists today. It's really extraordinary. Um, I spent a lot of my time dialoguing with, their, uh, with uh, American Baptists of various kinds because there are 60 million of them, and, and in my little wing of the Reformation, there are about 500,000 of us. So it's, it seems worthwhile to talk to 60 million people, but every one of them has to be spoken to individually, which is um, a, a little wearying. I kid you not, I, I've actually received emails to the effect that I know you've written about this, but I want you to talk to me specifically, individually, because I don't want to read something you wrote for someone else. So, and I wrote back and I said, I appreciate your honesty, because that's what a lot of people think, but few people have had the the intestinal fortitude to actually write and, and demand of me that I write out again by email everything I've already written. You can't, but you can't fault him for trying. In his, uh, he's responding uh, in part to the charge, of course, that uh, in his heart he wanted to uh, adopt the Anabaptist view, uh, but lacked the nerve to follow his convictions to their logical outworking. Uh, I doubt that's the case, but it is, I believe, the case that the Anabaptist challenge and his brief dalliance with them uh, prior to 23 uh, did drive him back to Scripture. And in driving him back to Scripture, he saw the continuity of the covenant of grace between Abraham and the new covenant in a way that he had not hitherto or heretofore seen. And so that very early on you see him beginning to make the same kinds of arguments about the continuity of scripture, continuity of the covenant of grace um, that uh, Bullinger is going to articulate in 1534. You, know, you, you may read on the uh, all-knowing internet that covenant theology was invented, reformed covenant theology was invented in the 17th century, sometimes postponed as late as 1670. Right, with Johannes Coxeus. Not true. Uh, Johannes Oikolampadius is working out a sketch of covenant theology in his commentary on Isaiah in the early 1520s. Zwingli is doing it in the early 1520s, and Bullinger is summarizing it in a treatise on, on covenant theology in 1534. Some details are yet to come, things like the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption, but, but the core of it is certainly present in the 20s and 30s. And uh, Zwingli's interaction with the Anabaptists is, is right at the heart of that. Well, we need to draw this to a close, and I'm almost done. Um, you, you may know, you may not know, Guy Debray as the author of, drafter of the Belgic Confession. This is the confession, uh, French language confession, adopted by the Dutch Reformed in the 60s and 70s, published first in 1561, largely a revision of the Gallic, or the French Confession, in which Calvin had a hand from 15. 59, and it's significant only because it was adopted by the Dutch churches and became one of the so-called three forms of unity. Belgic Confession, 1561, Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, and the Canons of Dort, uh, in, uh, published in 1619. 
Um, you may not know, however, that uh, Debray, Debray wrote two treatises before he wrote the Belgic, one of which was a response to the Anabaptists on the rise and spring of the Anabaptists. That's the short title. Time is, is running, so I don't have time to read you the whole title. One of his major criticisms of the Anabaptists, besides the interaction with baptism and the civil magistrate and, and other classic uh, areas of disagreement, uh, was specifically of, their, of what he perceived to be their denial of sola scriptura. He began in, uh, in that chapter by focusing on Munzer's claim, as he understood it, and I think quite uh, properly, quoting now, that ministers and preachers of the gospel were not sent by God, but are ministers of the dead letter. That's virtually a quote from the Prague Manifesto. He object, and, uh, and I think this is uh, possible because there were two German versions of the Prague Manifesto, but the third was a Latin text. And while Debray certainly didn't read German, he certainly read Latin. So I, I suspect he actually had access to the Prague Manifesto because the language he uses here is so close to the Prague Manifesto. And I don't usually make those genetic claims, but in this case it seems pretty, uh, at least likely. He objected to their claim that, again quoting, the, uh, the writing of the Old Testament and the preaching of the eternal word was not the word of God, but was only a testimony thereof. And that we must search for the word in the internal part, in our hearts, where God has put it. That we need not go far to seek it from uh, outside of us. He goes on to complain that there be some who daily have some new command from God. I was in Kansas City when the Kansas City prophets broke out, if any of you uh, know that. I was ministering in a small congregation, and I say small, 40 people, in a renovated gas station. And, uh, and, this was, uh, and I was meeting uh, with some of these folks for prayer, not even really knowing that it was going on, because as Jerry knows, and some of you, you, some of you know, right, pastoral ministry can be a little isolating. As it turns out, I was right in the middle of the Kansas City Prophets. Uh, but I did see some of the outworking of this, and, and uh, Debray could very well be describing the Kansas City prophets. People were standing up receiving words from the Lord about how you need to sell me your Chevy at a discounted price. And since it was a word from the Lord, you dare not, right? You dare not deny it. Um, some, uh, to make known unto brethren and strangers these uh, daily new commands, some are wrapped into ecstasy. Others have their appearance and their countenance changed, lying upon the ground certain hours. Some tremble and quake for two or three hours together. Now we've gone from Kansas City to Brownsville. If you know some of those, or the Toronto Blessing. When I was in the, the UK, they had the Barking Revival in St. Aldate's, just a street over from, from us. In an Anglican church, not only were they playing We Will, We Will Praise You with electric guitars that made me wonder about the stability of the building, they were sitting in the back of the church barking. When they, so that when they are come to themselves, they prophesy and speak strange things as if they had been in another world or as if they had fallen from out of heaven and they account to have that in common with the apostle when he was taken up into the third heaven. As for that, they criticize the ministers uh, as ministers of the dead letter. And one may plainly see the Lord taking vengeance upon the outrage offered upon his holy word, smiting them with the spirit of giddiness 
for having despised the true and only means of coming unto God, which is the Scripture and the Word of God. In the passage of Corinthians where Paul says the letter kills and the Spirit quickens, uh, let any uh, closely consider against whom the apostle disputes and they will understand his drift. It is very evident that Paul in this place had to do with false apostles who preached and extolled the law without Christ and caused people to recoil from salvation purchased by Christ and the grace of the new covenant whereunto the Lord had promised to write his law in the heart of the faithful. The law then being separated from Christ as a body without a soul and nothing cometh, cometh from it or comes from it but death, so that those who are under it do nothing but beat and strike the ears without any quickening of the soul until by faith we are sent from it to Christ as from an usher unto the master. And then the law will be found such as David sings it, etc. He reply, he goes on to reply by arguing that Timothy was not instructed to receive new revelations, but rather to be studious in the scriptures. It is not the office of the Holy Spirit, that which Christ promised, to dream of dreams of new and unknown revelations or to hold forth new doctrine, but it is the work of the Spirit of God to confirm in us that which he has already spoken by the prophets and apostles, seeing also that the Lord promised not to send us another doctrine, saying, hold fast that which thou hast until I come. He, equated Munzer, or he attacked Munzer as a false prophet, equating him with Muhammad, he appealed to Colossians 2.18 and Jeremiah 23 to warn against false prophets. He appealed to the objectivity of the scripture as the norm against which to judge the claims to new revelation. Well, I've been making contemporary applications and poking people in the eye uh, as I've gone along, but there were three things that occurred to me as I was working through this where, where we should think a bit um, and where we can learn uh, from this conflict between Munzer and the radicals and the more orthodox reformed on the other side, uh, particularly in America. We live in a land where a man who made his living by sticking his head, his face in a hat as a water diviner, founded a new religion and gave people inspiration to tra traverse virtually the entirety of the United States to find themselves in all place, in, in, of all places in Utah on the basis of a revelation from an angel and, and uh, magic glasses and plates that no one but maybe one other person saw. I say to you, based on my reading, that is actually the quintessential, and other people have said this, is not new with me, but the quintessential American religion. Uh, one writer calls uh, uh, Mormonism American Islam. And my purpose here isn't, isn't to get necessarily after the Mormons, but it is to highlight the nature of American religion. I keep telling my students, you'll know when I've sold out, if you see me on late night television claiming to have a new revelation about how they can be healthy, wealthy, and successful, it's said now before midnight, uh, slightly higher, west, west of the Rockies. 29.95, no COD, click now on the link below. I guarantee you I could do it and make a gazillion dollars because Americans love that stuff. Everything I ever got, basically, from the church growth folks when I was pastoring those 40 people in that renovated gas station was essentially some version of how I could market that to people and grow my church and be successful. It's the quintessential American religion to get a new revelation. We don't want a tedious, tired revelation that was given 2,000 years ago. What's that to us? We're Americans. 
This is the new world. We're doing a new thing. We want a new revelation. I think we need to be culturally uh, critical of that impulse among Americans and recognize the cost of being successful in this country. And I think it's a serious challenge whether we want to be, we can be a middle class Munzers and be very successful, but at, at what cost? I think it's at the cost of anything like historic Christianity. There, there are other aspects of Anabaptist theology that we could get into that, that actually also correlate with a lot of contemporary evangelicalism. Um, the, the celestial flesh Christology, even Menno, who was much more moderate than, than the Anabaptists of the 1520s, taught the celestial flesh Christology, which is a patent denial of the ecumenical Christology and a denial of the true body of Christ. Um, a couple of, there are other ways I could poke people in the eye. Uh, contemporary, there's a strong contemporary move, and I've had dialogue with people over this, uh, arguing that what, what reform theology needs uh, these days is a good dose of Pentecostalism. So I think this is, uh, for me, this is helpful to go back and reconnect with the roots of Sola Scriptura and the original context of Sola Scriptura and understand that Sola Scriptura was in part formulated as a way of arti articulating Christianity against that very thing. I don't think that we can synthesize uh, Pentecostalism with Reformed Christianity any more than Guy Debray could synthesize Thomas Munzer with Reformed theology. I've touched already a little bit on theonomy and Christian reconstruction, that, that sort of uh, over-realized eschatology. In, in my reading of these fellows, and there's an interesting new volume by McVicker on Rush Dooney himself, and where he sort of demythologizes him because he functions as something like a boogeyman. When I don't know if, uh, if Bill Moyers is still doing stuff on PBS, but if he wants to draw an audience, all he has to do is talk about the boogeyman of Christian reconstruction and get people heated up about the, the coming theocracy. Um, read McVicker's book, and Rush Dooney becomes a much more human, much le in a way, much less scary figure in the way that Bill Moyers would have us think, and a scarier figure in other ways, because he very successfully, and in a kind of underground way, promulgated to a lot of people an eschatological, almost apocalyptic vision of a future collapse of, of world civilization, particularly American civilization, out of which is going to arise out of the ashes a Christian, a reconstructed society along Christian lines. And he wrote a three-volume exposition of the biblical law that would serve as kind of a Protestant Talmud by which society could be organized. That, uh, I say, the roots of that are much closer to, to Munzer than to Calvin, theocrat that he was. Uh, he had no time for the abiding validity of the civil law in exhaustive detail to modify language from one of the theonomists. Uh, the last thing I could say perhaps is, uh, is since I'm here at, at uh, First Pres and, and I know the status, I think I know the status that Bart has in the PCUSA, um, I should note that um, I have learned from one of my colleagues, Ryan Glomsud, who is, I am not a Bart scholar, but um, I know some Bart scholars, and I, I'd read a little bit of the literature. And uh, Glom Ryan Glomsrud is a Bart scholar, and he notes that one of the earliest uh, critiques of Bart's first Romer brief was that, as Glomsrud, as Glomsrud writes, Bart had become essentially a modern-day Anabaptist. 
And uh, one of the fellows who noted this connection uh, was uh, Walter uh, Kuhler, himself a, a student of radical Protestantism. If you read the literature on Münzer, you will see Kuhler's name as an early 20th century scholar of this period and those movements. And, he, and as he read Bart, he linked him to the 16th century Anabaptist, Caspar Schwenkfeld. Uh, I haven't seen yet that anybody links him directly to Münzer, but if, as I was you know, uh, describing Münzer's view of scripture, right? Well, I can say it this way. I don't know what your experience is, but when I do this with my students, ine almost inevitably somebody will raise his hand and say, or her hand, and say, well, that sounds just like Bart. But I think that's very interesting. Now, uh, just to um, distance uh, Ryan from this, uh, Ryan says he doesn't think, he hastens to add that he doesn't think that, that those critiques were entirely accurate, but I think Kuhler had a case. I'm not saying they're actually, uh, uh, that they're identical, but I think they are uh, interestingly similar. And mind you, it's, there is a kind of internal logic. Where did Bart end up on baptism? What did he do in the 1940s? He abandoned the reformed view of baptism. Is there a, ne is there a necessary connection? I don't know that, but it is just a very interesting uh, set of circumstances. So I, I think these are things that, that bear further uh, reflection uh, in, in a variety of ways. So there it is.